Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert Angel Shu. Angel is an assistant professor of public policy and the environment at UNC Chapel Hill. She's also founder and director of the Data-Driven EnviroLab, an interdisciplinary research group that innovates and applies quantitative approaches to pressing environmental issues. Let's hear what she has to say about the 2003 European heat wave. Hi, Angel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So could you start off by telling our listeners about EnviroLab and how your research is used? Yeah, so I founded my research group, the Data-Driven EnviroLab, in 2015 to meet the charge that environmental policy for a long time has relied on educated guesses and hunches, but not on hard facts. And so while there is a lot of big data on individuals, consumers, companies that use data to market things to us constantly through ad campaigns, I mean, I think we're inundated with them every time we sign on to Instagram to the point where I'm thinking that these companies are reading my mind, right? The challenge is that we don't have anything analogous for the environment. It's really difficult to get real-time data on animal species, for example. Whales don't tweet, trees don't shop on Amazon. And so it's hard for us to really understand what's going on with the environment and particularly the climate. And so that's what my lab is trying to do. We're trying to get there, to get us big data on the environment and to think about how we can distill signals to help understand how is the climate doing? Are we closer or farther from meeting our climate goals? 
how are the trees doing and how are cities doing in terms of trying to protect citizens from climate change. So that's what we're all about. We're trying to make the invisible visible and be a platform for change using data, uh, particularly at the intersection of climate change and policy. We talk a lot about climate change. I just, you know, think as a as a as a group of people. But I wonder if we all really understand exactly what that is. <laughs> now, I, I know this is a very entry level question, but what is human driven climate change and what are the major factors that contribute to it? This is a really great question. And it's not too elementary. I teach a class on climate science and policy, and we actually start the class with this question. What is climate change and how is it different from the weather? Because I'm sure you've heard many politicians that will say, oh, well, it is unseasonably cool in April. So this must mean that climate change is not happening. Global warming doesn't exist. And so people have a tendency to take individual experiences with the weather, which is short term phenomenon related to the temperature, to wind speed, for example, humidity. Uh, all of these are, are variables and are metrics of, of weather. But then when we talk about climate change, we're actually looking at weather over an extended period of time, normally 30 years. And where it gets really tricky is a lot of the naysayers and the climate denialists are right. A lot of what we're experiencing are just natural uh, cyclical climatic events that have occurred throughout human history. So there are some times when we will feel cool periods that are not necessarily indicative of global warming, but it's all part of the, the natural history. So you can go back hundreds of thousands of years and you've seen that there have been cooling periods and warming periods. These are all natural variability that have to do with the amount of energy that's coming in and out of our, our, our uh, Earth's energy system. And so this is this is pretty normal. And, and also volcanic activity, when we've had explosions of volcanoes, these also have led to cooling periods. But what is unusual about this particular time that we're living in and this period, the human-induced or the hum human-influenced climatic period has been referred to as the Anthropocene. So anthro being that root word that relates to humans is the fact that we're experiencing unusually warm temperatures that have not been experienced since humans have occupied the planet or even before that. We can even go further back into the glacial record. And so that I think is what is more worrisome and it happens to coincide with when humans started to burn fossil fuels as part of the Industrial Revolution in the 1850s. And so if we take a look at carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emission levels, those have a direct relationship with how much the temperature has increased since that period. And so the climate system has not experienced carbon dioxide levels as it has since 1950. We've surpassed anything that was natural or naturally occurring in the atmosphere. And then we've seen that carbon dioxide levels have essentially doubled since the Industrial Revolution. And um, we're, so, so, those are, so those are what we refer to as human fingerprints on the Earth's climate system. And so uh, I think that part is really what we can point to as being uh, the, the, human, the human fingerprint and what human influence has done and has been driving um, our, our current climate system. And so I can go into more details if, uh, <laughs> if, if you want. Um, I don't know how much, how much more detail. I would like to know more. You know, I, I think that this is a common thing amongst us where we think we understand what, what we're talking about, but we really don't. Um, so if you could go into more detail, I mean, it, it seems that the, the, the 2003 heat wave caught 
European government officials by surprise. Um, why was this? Why were they so ill prepared, particularly in France? Yeah, so this is a great question. And going back to trying to understand the human drivers of climate change. So there's a paper that I like to teach in my climate science class, which was developed by NASA scientist James Hansen. And he is one of the most well-known climate scientists in the U.S. and was one of the first to testify to Congress to say, hey, wait a second, climate change is happening and it's not a result of natural factors. This is actually directly the result of humans burning fossil fuels and contributing to atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases that the planet has not seen before. And the temperature is responding as a result of these additional forcers in the atmosphere that are uh, creating an energy imbalance in the Earth's climate system. And so what he said, using historic temperature data from around 1950 up until the present, was that humans have essentially been loading the climate dice. And so by putting more fossil fuels into the atmosphere, and also by converting vegetated surfaces, and we'll talk about this later, but by contributing to the urban heat island effect, so by creating cities and more paved surfaces, we're actually making the planet much hotter than it would be otherwise. And so the greenhouse gases making the Earth's Earth surfaces less reflective, more absorptive of energy, that's actually leading to climate change. And so humans are in effect loading the climate dice. And so we're 10 times more likely to experience an unusually warm day than we were in previous decades compared to a 1950 to 1980 baseline period. And so that's what humans are doing. So more warm and extreme temperatures are more likely to happen. There's a higher probability. So I always talk to my students about gambling and, and going to the casino. So we're, we're loading the climate dice. We're no longer playing with fair climate dice. And so I think that's a good analogy to understand what humans are really doing to the climate system. We used to have an equal probability, fair climate dice of having an unusually cool day, a typical day, or an unusually warm day. But now due to burning of fossil fuels, everyone driving cars and running their ACs, we are loading the climate dice and making it more likely that we're going to experience these extreme days. And I think that's why the 2003 European heat wave caught the French government and citizens off guard because heat and climate change, it's a slow phenomenon. And so it, it really caught people off guard because they weren't expecting it. You think about a natural disaster like a hurricane or a flooding event, for example, happening all at once and suddenly. But with heat and with climate change, that's the challenge. You're looking at a slow time period over the course of a 30-year time period. And so when a few people die or it's a, temperatures are a little bit hot, it's hard to then pinpoint and attribute that particular event to something like a disaster, even though heat waves are the most deadliest weather event that occurs due to climate change. And so that I think is probably, and I'm not a historian, so I, I will fully admit that I'm not a historian, but I mean, we see this, the 2003 European heat wave wasn't the only time that policymakers have been caught off guard and are still being caught off guard and citizens too by climate change. In terms of public policy, then what were some of the big failures on the part of the French government? So, I mean, I don't want to put my uh, French policymakers and the French government uh, <laughs> you know, in the hot seat, so to say. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that people and the policymakers were just simply ill-prepared. And so from the accounts that I've read, a lot of it was simply climate denialism. 
saying that that this is not a problem, that summers are hot. I mean, literally, they had policymakers in France saying, well, what's the problem? Summers are meant to be hot. And so not recognizing that heat waves that are exacerbated by climate change that are making them more frequent, more intense, and also more common, that this could actually be a problem that they needed to develop a concerted strategy to try to prevent. And I mean, I think um, also what, what is quite interesting is the fact that a lot of the head leaders of the French government during that time, including the prime minister and the minister of health, they were actually vacationing like in the Alps and in the French Riviera <laughs> during August when many of these deaths were happening and hospitals were becoming overwhelmed. And so I think that also, I think, led to the not so great image of the French government, the fact that leaders, when they should have been dealing with this crisis and this disaster, were actually on vacation. And so, I mean, that's always a problem. I collaborate a lot with uh, European colleagues, and it's just kind of this running joke that we don't do anything in August. We don't start any new papers. We don't start new projects because everyone's on vacation. So I think that that um, certainly could have been a contributing factor. But yeah, I mean, I think at the at the core, what seems to me the the root of the problem and looking at a lot of different cities across the United States, for example, that are now experiencing regular heat waves. So these are just prolonged periods. It could just be two days of unusually warm weather and temperature and stagnant air that can lead to these heat events. They're just not prepared. They're denying and saying, well, this is just a freak accident or something that was unprecedented or that uh, nobody could have predicted. I mean, these were direct lines that I've read in reports policymakers in France were saying, and nothing could be done anyway. And these people were old, so maybe they just died of natural causes. It's a lot of whataboutism and excuses and denialism. And, it, and to me, it's, it's, it's not surprising. I mean, these are common tribes, tropes that I hear very frequently with um, a lot of people who frankly, don't believe in climate change or the fact that it's happening. It's not something that is going to occur many years down the road. It's happening right now. And so to me, that's that's the big uh, the big challenge. But also, I think the idea of, of heat and what is considered a disaster in public discourse and in public policy, I think that's also a challenge. And so for many countries, including France, they don't necessarily classify heat waves as a natural disaster. And so oh, I think that's wow. also a problem when you don't have policy that actually classifies something as a potential danger or a disaster, then there's not necessarily the policy in, in, in line to actually then support what happens when you experiencing, when you experience an event like you do, uh, that is unprecedented, like the 2003 European heat wave. So to me, that also had a, a huge role to play in their seemingly lack of preparedness. Well, that's so shocking to me, because if you think about a hurricane, for example, if you didn't categorize that yeah. as a hurricane, then we would just say it's it's a big storm that that's happens right. to <laughs> hit. <laughs> we wouldn't track it. We wouldn't have all the, uh, you know, the scientific data behind it to help prevent, you know, and, uh, and save lives. So I mean, that's, that's really shocking to me. Um, in our, in our episode, we, we spoke about the urban heat island effect. And can you help us understand what it is and how it affects urban areas? Absolutely. So the urban heat island effect is actually a measure of an urban area or a city's direct contribution to elevated temperatures. So it's looking at the temperature differential if we compare 
how hot it is in an urban core compared to a background rural area. And in my other class that I teach on urbanization and environment, we talk about, well, what is an urban area and what is rural? And, it, and it's very much like a spectrum. But what scientists do is they actually, to measure the urban heat island effect, they take temperature readings in a downtown urban setting. And they normally do this at night because that's when also a city and building materials and pavement and asphalt hold on to that heat that is generated as the sun warms up an urban area during the daytime. And then they compare it to an, a rural area. So uh, a vegetated area that's forested or that's landscaped. And so that's kind of a background area to compare against. And so you can measure that temperature differential. And that is the urban heat island effect. And there are many different factors that contribute to an urban heat island effect. So I mentioned uh, buildings and pavements, for example. So just the simple conversion of a forested or vegetated area to pavement makes it hotter. And so I'm sure you've all have walked out into a parking lot in dead summer and it's, it's really, really hot. And you can feel the heat radiating from that pavement. And then even at nighttime, if you're walking in New York City, for example, or in a downtown area, you, it still feels very warm, even though there's no sun present. And it's because those materials retain that heat. And then uh, also human activity that contributes to the urban heat island effect. And so people, when they have air conditioners on buildings, those actually generate a lot of heat. I mean, that's how they cool an indoor area. They're actually expelling warm air from an indoor environment out. And so that's making a city and its surrounding area much hotter than it would be otherwise. And then cars, vehicles, motorcycles, for example, those are all combusting fuel and generating heat. And so if you touch your car after you shut it off, it, it is hot. And so all of these forces are retaining and, and generating heat. And then also building materials themselves. So brick, for example, is much more insulating than wood, for example, and other types of building materials. And then the ways that cities are configured and their urban forms, those also can really affect how much wind flow can pass through and how much air can, can dissipate. And so these are factors that, that make cities much hotter than they would be otherwise. And why I'm interested in studying in it is because it's the portion that people and that policymakers can have direct control of, over in terms of trying to control temperatures that could then uh, affect, for example, heat waves and their intensity. Speaking of air, how is stagnant air a contributing factor to heat waves? What is stagnant air? I mean, yeah, I, so, yeah. I can imagine it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, stagnant air is exactly what you described and are probably imagining. It's air that, that doesn't move. And that, that's directly the uh, results of um, or, or the, the, the factor that leads to, to heat waves. And so it's normally created when you've got a high pressure system. And so this is referred to as an anti-cyclone. And so it sounds exactly as it might seem, which is the opposite of a cyclone. So it's a pressure system over a low pressure area. And so this is when atmospheric pressure, it builds, it builds up and then it creates this sinking column of air that shrinks, it gets hot again, and then it often becomes dry. And so it kind of acts like a cap or a heat dome that then prevents cooler and faster moving air from breaking it up. And so it's, it's, this is referred to as atmospheric blocking that then leads to or can lead to a heat wave, particularly if it prolongs over several days. And then it, it's become particularly bad in urban areas because of this urban heat island effect. 
And so when you've got um, materials in an urban area, such as concrete and asphalt, then they can uh, just make it even worse by intensifying the stagnant air and the heat that's trapped within this heat dome. And so um, that's, that's why it's particularly pro- problematic. Now, I- I'm going to ask you for two types of advice. <laughs> um, one, how can uh, local officials be more prepared for these kinds of emergencies uh, from rising temperatures? And, you know, as a community, how can we minimize these heat-related deaths? Um, and also, how would you advise people on how to combat human-driven climate change? Or what, what, what would you tell people who are scared by the effects of, of, of this kind of climate change? Essentially, what can we do? Yeah, that's that's a really great question. And I think number one, and this is probably not going to be as surprising because of the name of my research group, but I think data and mapping. And so we need information on which parts of a city or an urban area, which groups of the population, which segments, who's most vulnerable, who's most at risk. And I think that's the first step in helping to then develop plans to direct resources and to understand, okay, do we need to build a cooling station here? Or during particularly hot days and potential heat wave events, where do we need to be on alert that there could be increased hospitalizations or health effects that could signal a longer term problem? And that's what happened in the European uh, heat wave of 2003. Policymakers were essentially asleep at the wheel. They said, oh, eight or 10 deaths of old people, that doesn't necessarily signal a possible wider health emergency that was something in the order of 35,000 deaths. I mean, they, they, they just weren't paying attention, but this is exactly where data can really help. And so our research group, for example, we created an urban environment and social inclusion index to do exactly that. And so we're using satellite data and crowdsource data from open street maps, for example, to actually map neighborhood by neighborhood, how hot is a particular neighborhood compared to the next? What is the urban heat island effect in this neighborhood compared to another? How much tree cover and shade might there be available to citizens and residents living in that neighborhood? And what what is the socioeconomic uh, uh, distribution of citizens living there? Are they poor? Are they living below the poverty line, for example, or the median income level? And so this type of mapping can help provide transparency and visibility to, to show decision makers, okay, well, where might there be populations that are particularly vulnerable when we have elevated temperatures? And so to me, that's that's the number one thing that cities can do is to actually get data so then they can actually help to anticipate. So that's, that's I think, the number one thing. And it's just not being done regularly. And so I think that's, that's the number one thing. And then I think, um, secondly, cities and urban planners can really do a lot to make a city cooler. And so there's a lot of scientific evidence that shows that shadier areas and green spaces can help to provide more cooling for citizens under extreme heat events. And so trees can provide a lot of shade and evaporative cooling. They help to filter out air pollution and air pollution actually is also further exacerbated during heat events. So in the presence of more sunlight, ozone pollution, for example, can become elevated and that can also uh, have a number of respiratory impacts on vulnerable populations. And so uh, being able to, to plant cooler areas and develop green spaces, that's really critical. And then um, some cities are trying to actually affect the albedo or the surface reflectance of their cities. So making cool roofs. New York City, for example, had a cool roofs campaign to paint rooftop areas uh, white to make them more reflective and cooler. 
And then uh, things like buildings, for example, and building design. I was recently living in Singapore and they've just done incredible innovation in terms of trying to make uh, building materials that are uh, less absorptive of heat and um, buildings, there they they would be malls with open wind canyons to just allow for a lot more natural airflow instead of using air conditioning, which just compounds the problem of generating more urban heat. So I think there's a lot more that, that, um, that planners can do. And then in terms of citizens, I think, yeah, this is a, this is a tricky question. I think for a long time, because I was living in Singapore for five years where there's not really freedom of speech. So I couldn't say, oh, demand, go and protest and demand (laughs) that your local (laughs) government representatives do something on climate change. But in the U.S. context, that's absolutely, I think the number one thing I would encourage people to do is to get involved locally and to pressure local governments and state governments and also the national government to do something on climate change to tackle ambitious climate action. And I think thankfully, after four years of inaction, we finally have President Biden who does have a climate change strategy in place that tackles many of the things that I just mentioned. And so I think that's really encouraging, but these policymakers are not going to do it unless there's constant pressure. So I I would say that that's the number one thing. But then I think also individually, you have to also be aware that during particularly hot days and summertime months that you could be more vulnerable. So being sure to protect your children, keeping them hydrated. If you do have uh, sensitivities to dehydration or heat stroke or other types of uh, correlated health impacts, for example, diabetes or um, high blood pressure, all of these, I think, need to make you need to be even more aware of particularly hot days. Uh, One of the things that I'm particularly excited about being involved in in, is uh, we're partnering with the North Carolina Museum of Science that is uh, partnering with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, N-O-A-A, to get citizens to go out on a hot day in July to collect very high resolution individual temperature data within Durham and and Raleigh, North Carolina. And so we're gonna also arm people with a smartphone app that we are customizing to get more information about how people feel in hot urban areas. So when you're walking around in an urban area or you're cycling or you're running and you're going through different parts of town, are you feeling comfortable, uncomfortable? Are you in shade or are you not? And so I think also people could get involved in these local citizen science campaigns to help scientists like myself better understand how urban heat affects people personally and to get better, more fine-grained resolution measurements so that we can improve the mapping that we're doing to get even more granular to be able to pinpoint some of these um, policy interventions. Wow, that's such a proactive thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have 400 volunteers already signed up and uh, my collaborator at the museum is saying, yeah, we're, we're so excited that so many people are engaged and want to become more aware about urban heat and climate change, and they want to contribute to help solve the problem. So, yeah, he even said, yeah, well, can, what else can we do? What other data can we have them collect? And so we're, we're planning a lot of different things, including hackathons for people to help visualize the data and help us understand it better. So I think more and more cities could do this. It's relatively easy. The sensors are low cost and you, we know that we have people who are engaged and who want to be involved. So at the end of the day, if you had to pick one person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the tens of thousands of deaths that occurred during the 2003 European heat wave, who or what would that be? 
Well, one, and I think the first response would be a little bit tongue in cheek. I would say the lack of air conditioning. So in Europe, <laughs> uh, something like fewer than 10% of households actually have air conditioning. And from my understanding, it's, it's part cultural. So they kind of look over at Americans here and say, oh, Americans are just energy gluttons and everybody, man, woman, and child has an air conditioner for themselves and, and they're not wrong. And, and they're a lot more climate conscious in Europe. But I think that in the short term, absolutely, that had to do with a lot of people dying. They just did, simply didn't have access to air conditioning. And uh, so, so you look at a lot of these climate scenarios and projections and increases in energy and electricity consumption in Europe are projected to happen because of the need for more air conditioning as these more frequent above 100 degree temperatures are going to become more common, not just in France, but all throughout Europe. And so I think that's that's number one. But then um, I think number two, I would go back to the concept of just climate de denialism. Many policymakers and citizens just simply think that, oh, this is a freak event or we survived this heat wave one year. And so next year it may not happen. But I think that's the wrong attitude to have. Absolutely. This is the, the trap that people fall into and, and they think that, oh, this is something that's not going to happen to me next year or can't happen, or it was just a freak, unprecedented accident. But all of the climate models that I work with and the climate assessments and the scenarios, they all show that this is going to be the new normal that in the future, because of climate change and rising global temperatures and greenhouse gas emissions, we're going to more commonly see prolonged heat events and the likelihood of more extreme and more intense and more frequent heat waves just happen and become part of the new normal in the future. And so I think that that's the, the what to me is, is to blame is that they had experienced, France had experienced heat waves before but then had just passed them off as one-off events. And so not classifying it as, it, it as a disaster or as a potential uh, natural thing that they needed to actually prepare against. Um, and then it just hit them in 2003. I think that that's, that's really um, part of the, why they got caught so off guard and why so many people died from the event. And so to me, climate denialism is, uh, is the danger, is the real culprit. Well, Angel, I'm just in awe of you. Thank you for, you know, talking to us and keep collecting that data and fighting the good fight. Yes, I will. Thank you so much for having me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Alarmist. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Uh, hello, Rebecca. Hello, Alarmy. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi, everyone. Well, how about that, uh, you know, college course we just took? Um, <laughs> I felt so inspired. <laughs> I want to get I, that. I know. Um, I just want to get that app on my phone. I want to, like, start walking out in, like, urban areas and, you know, getting temperatures. <laughs> I want to I want to hook up whales with cell phones. That's what I want. <laughs> what a need, missed opportunity. We no, I, but really how could I mean Jeez, I mean can we make a smartwatch for at least for like sloths and stuff? Like what can we for do? For trees too. We got to get trees on Twitter. Trees on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but really like I'll think about all the information that Instagram knows about me and then think about applying that to actually important information instead of oh, I know. what kind of shoes I like to wear occasionally, you know? It, I know. It's like really my big takeaway was just how much having data is key to understanding all of this. And and just the idea that um, what she said about that heat waves aren't and weren't really considered a disaster in public discourse and that they often aren't classified as natural disasters and how, like you were saying, Rebecca, how important that is, um, you know, in order to properly prepare for them. Because if, if they're not, if people aren't even thinking of a heat wave as a dangerous event, then of course people are going to die. That really blew my mind because, and, and, and just thinking about like the mud, the money that gets put into research, right? So, or, or lack thereof, the lack of money that's put into this kind of research when it's something that is affecting so many people and so many people are dying, um, it really shocked me because like that, I mean, think about all the, you know, and not to say that this isn't valid as well, but like earthquake preparedness, hurricane right. preparedness we have, uh, tornado warnings. I mean, we have systems in place, but there's no system for a heat wave. It's just like maybe your local newspaper writes an article saying it's going to be hot and like 
go to a go to the mall wear wear a hat like (laughs) and i think it's got to start in schools too because like growing up like we were having earthquake drills and it's sad but they should probably start doing like heat wave drills they should and not only that but i what about this idea guys and this could also help big hollywood we open up more movie theaters pump that ac and when the heat wave comes around half off tickets get people in those theaters in the cool air and hey also why don't you check out this great new pixar film yes i love that idea i think that's great wow i was about to poo poo on it and then you totally changed my perspective when you said half off prices <laughs> right <laughs> yeah but i mean they would crush and people would get in the theater and like i don't know and yeah big hollywood hop to it i mean movie theaters are dying right because of the covid um, yes so this is a good uh, opportunity now she climate denialism can we talk oh, about this because yes she put it so perfectly um and i think that this was the issue that we were feeling or kind of like trying tiptoeing around when we were recording our episode where it's like how can you blame climate change because climate change is just doing what it does right it's it's us obviously it's it's it is the industrial revolution that that got it started but really it's climate denialism yes a uh, genius. And just to remind everyone listening, uh, we sent French leadership negligence to jail and we slapped human driven climate change on our on our episode. So I don't know if we're thinking we want to uh, tweak the verdict here after talking to Angel. But and she also did say lack of air conditioning, <laughs> which we did. Did we have that on? The no, board? that definitely I'm, I'm didn't go up. That. We did we talked about it. We talked about it, and we also talked about uh, cell phones, uh, minutes, uh, you know, like... <laughs> oh, yeah, like we don't... We, yeah, we didn't have enough technology. Yeah. Right. But um, maybe perhaps what we can do is kind of tweet... We, we were tip... Again, we were tiptoeing around... We were so close, but it just... Climate denialism of the French government, perhaps, should have been sent to the alarmist jail. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that would be good or even just like government climate denialism because like we really narrowed in on France here. Yeah, but yeah. this France was not the only place that had a high, high death count. That's so true. I, I think you're right. Government climate denialism. Which is driven by big industries that rely on people shipping goods you know, destroying the environment by uh, burning fossil fuels and um, that kind of thing. So the, all of those politicians that practice climate denialism so routinely are in the pocket of these big industries um, like the fossil fuel industries. So uh, it's really um, frustrating for us citizens and to you know, hear about these, these events that are happening. And, 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 and I also wanted to throw in there, you know, it's, it's sort of like a particular, like, I love the way that she described it in terms of loading the dice, because I think a common refrain you hear from people who practice climate denialism is like, well, you can't prove, prove that climate change is the result of these individual, um, 
uh, weather events. These have happened all throughout the ages. Mm -hmm. They will continue to happen. And while that's true, I think this idea that human-driven climate change loads the dice so that these things will happen more frequently and more severely um, is the, the is is it's so dangerous. Yeah, and it's, it's cumulative. We can either address these problems or we can continue to sort of find clever ways to sort of write them off. And um, that to me is the most sort of insidious version of climate denialism. And so I'm fully behind if we want to put that back in there and get that in our alarmist jail. Now, uh, I'm about to make the call here. But I just uh, want to make sure I'm being thorough. I, I, uh, I'm reading some of your notes you guys were taking while I was talking to Angel. This was our most active note session. Yeah, it <laughs> was. It, it was. It really was. Uh, Chris and I were going nuts on the Google Doc. <laughs> Chris perked up with casino analogy. Hey, Lol. Anytime you Eek, can get those- I run to my AC too much. <laughs> I think yeah. not only were you taking notes, but you were having like a full-blown realizations about your life. Yeah, this is basically my live journal. <laughs> It's so true. Anytime anyone, somebody, anytime someone uses a gambling analogy, you're, you're so right. I, I, I'm Chris understood. Those, he was like, finally understood climate hands. change. <laughs> I, I'm just seeing here. Amanda wrote, "Stop running your your AC, you metropolitan monster." That, that was a Chris note. That was me. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> okay. Um, um, and uh, you know, the other reason why I really like sending climate denialism to jail is because one of the ways Angel said we as just everyday citizens can help us to lean on our governments. And so this is our way of trying to hold the government accountable to say like, hey, look into this, like, let's address this. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, what do you guys think? I'm going to call it. I'm going to do it. I think you should call it. Government climate denialism. You're going to the alarmist jail. Now, for a second, I thought she was going to send the Industrial Revolution. And I was like, oh, oh, Amanda, we're going to need to send another touch tool to one of our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> oh, how much did that cost? That kid, did that come, does that come out of my end, too, when we send? Yeah, Chris, yeah, Chris pays for it. God darn yeah. it. I knew I should have looked at that paperwork when you guys handed me my, my fact checker contract. Because we do pay Chris in touch tools. So how many do you have now? I think it's a, up to 100. I've, I've got 13 you guys have given me. So a baker's dozen so far. And uh, I keep checking on eBay and they're still very, they're not very worth a lot of money. At least not as much money as you told me they would be worth at this point. So I just I'm am imagining Chris, that- instead of Edward scissor hands, your Edward touch tool hands. And each one of your fingers is a, touch, a brass touch tool. Yeah, he even has them on his toes. He's got a few extra. <laughs> that is so scary. <laughs> Gross. I think that's the grossest thing we've ever said on this podcast. I know. Chris touch tool hands. Touch to- touch tool toes. Chris touch right. <laughs> Oh and I, I'm sorry, I just I, I'm in the I'm in, I can't quite hear you, Amanda, but I have a feeling you're making fun of me. Yeah, that's right. I am that's I, I am. need to know. Um and then also I just want to say I um, am looking at Angel's website for the um, data driven lab. So if you go to datadrivenlab.org, uh, it's a really, really cool website here. This is all about the EnviroLab and collecting data. And there's a bunch of very interesting articles here that I'm reading. Um, 
or that I'm seeing. So like one is like heat amplifies racial inequality in the U- in U.S. cities and are different actors coordinating on climate change, um, net zero beyond the buzzword. So I really think it's worth going to datadrivenlab.org and just taking a look at some of the information on here. And then I think they're also on Twitter. So uh, yeah, something something good to if you want to educate yourself further, make it your homepage. Just make that <laughs> your homepage. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not kidding. Um, okay. Well, I mean, thank you so much, Angel. Thank you to the Alarmy. And of course, thank you to our fact checker, Chris, Amanda. What a great day we're having. Uh, and welcome. I hope everyone out there You're is welcome. also. Uh, okay, thank you. Touch tool, Chris. <laughs> new name, new name. Uh, I hope everyone out there is having a good day. Uh, stay cool, stay hydrated. Get under. Hopefully, you have some trees uh, to get under some shade. And if you don't, let's all help uh, plant more trees because we, we know we need them. And I'm going off on a tirade, but um, <laughs> but uh, I'm just I'm just uh, incensed and inspired. The two eyes, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, tune in next week because we are going to be discussing the 1992 Guadalajara explosions. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.